Welcome back to the Film 89 podcast. This is episode 87. I'm Sky, and tonight I'm joined by the great Tony Stella, film poster artist extraordinaire and master cinephile Tony. Welcome back to Film 89. Thank you for having me back. I always love being on the show and I always love coming together for a special topic where it comes straight from the heart and this is such an occasion. It's your second time joining us this year after our Conan the Barbarian episode along with John Arminio back in May and that episode is now our most downloaded episode of 2022 and it's eclipsed even our Star Wars episode from earlier on this year. So Tony, thank you for your efforts in that episode and you know, I know it's one that you really enjoyed doing. Yeah, that was such an occasion with John that I felt like and what you guys are always really strong about is finding this camaraderie and I felt we are all coming together sitting by the campfire and it was just an all-out love fest and, 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 and just going through these memories of childhood but then actually refocusing it for the episode. It was just such a joy. And I actually re-listened to that a couple of times, which I rarely do. And it was, uh, yeah, it, it, that was great. And John, talking about John, he's, he took all my other Bond episodes away from all our friends because he went through it on the pink smoke. And, you know, so I was I always felt like, ah, oh, I should chime in. Uh, but he did such a great job going through all the Bond films in, in, in order that I always felt like, ah, oh, I, I need to speak about my first love and which was, you know, James Bond. And, and now now I got the chance finally for the anniversary. Yeah, yeah. And, well, you know, you and I are going to be tackling that very subject tonight. And a franchise, that's surprising me. It hasn't been discussed in depth on Film 89 yet. And, and that is British super spy James Bond. And tonight is going to be a celebration of the 60th anniversary of the first of the official Eon Productions 007 films with Dr. No from 1962 based on the novel by Ian Fleming, which was the sixth in the series of his books, published in 1958. The film was produced by Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. It was directed by Terence Young and starred the late, great Sean Connery as James Bond. Connery had been cast after Cubby Broccoli saw him in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Now, <laughs> prior to this, he was pretty much a non-entity, and this was his first major kind of big screen role. But Tony, what is your earliest experience with the James Bond franchise? And can you remember which film you saw first? And more importantly, oh, yeah. was Sean Connery your favorite Bond when you were a kid? Well, he's he's for me. He's even more than that. He's beyond. He's almost. He's 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 beyond reasoning. He's there, there's so much love for Connery and Bond is very personal to me. As I feel, it is for all of us in our generation, and we all come to add at him at a different place in time and I have to thank my father that he really exposed me to the films in chronology it was almost like we're watching this we're doing this together and we're doing them in order so the first my first hero really at the core of my movie love even finding the love for movies at an early age was James Bond and was Sean Connery and it was I was so galvanized and, and fascinated by his portrayal I was just I, you, I couldn't even tell you there was n no second to to Sean Connery's portrayal of James. There was no Indiana Jones. There was no Luke Skywalker. For me, it was James Bond. And now, looking back at all these years later and looking at my work and who I've become, I can really see that some of this early influence of seeing him on screen move around and 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 just so elegant and sophisticated and lethal and the type of man he portrayed on screen really is at the roots of of, of so many of my character developments for good or, or or bad but like look at my work now it's all out of its time it's totally anachronistic it's a man out of time 
time. It's it's something I, I was always an old kid. And even in the 80s, I fell in love with a 60s character who was in the books already in a relic, you know, a man out of time. And so when you when you look at all the posters I do and the, the, the techniques I still use, this is all kind of an homage and a love for that texture and, and kind of the bygone era. And I really credit this a lot to that early first love of, of James Bond. And for me, there's really no other Bond. I'm very strict on that. And even though I enjoyed the subsequent uh, incarnations, they are only working in a template. And most of them can only bring one of the assets to the role, either the charm or the deadliness, but they cannot do present the full mix. And like you said, the reason I think this is such a successful, the most successful film franchise of all time is because off the bat, right off the bat with Dr. No, they hit it out of the park so hard. And from the first second this on screen, it just lit everybody on fire. And that was the success as many fathers. And of course, Fleming and but all these other professionals that came in to realize this film. I feel it's a really, really special one. And if we if we if we rank them, it's it's the first two that really are for me. They're almost like one and they give and take. I could they could replace each other as my favorite. But Dr. No is really, really up there. That kind of answers a question I was going to close with. But <laughs> if, first off, right, my own earliest kind of specific memory of the Bond right. franchise, other than vague ones of seeing them on TV with, with my grandfather was, and this is real specific to me, <laughs> was the promotional stuff around the release of Octopussy in 1983. Now, I know that's, this is way beyond the, the, the Connery era now. This is well into you know the, the kind of twilight of Roger Moore. But that is my earliest specific memory of Bond, and it was in particular these sets of Octopussy stickers the Kellogg's were giving away with their boxes of cereals. Now, for me, my James Bond growing up was Roger Moore, simply because at the time where I first became aware of film, Roger Moore was the Bond that I was seeing like on film posters, billboards, and, and on TV advertising. But I was still, because of, you know, through my grandfather and, and, and through my parents, very much aware of the Connery Bond films. But unlike you, Tony, I think it wasn't until my late 20s and certainly early 30s that where it got to a point where I disregarded the Bond films for decades. And I really got back into them in a big way. And logically, I went back to the beginning and dived headlong into Dr. No. I was probably when I first saw Doctor No, I, I must have been maybe a you know a kid or going into my teens. But when I I saw it as a, as an adult, where I specifically remember seeing the film from beginning to end or beginning to end, I was definitely in my my late twenties when, when I I first reappraised that film as an adult. And what really hit me the most was how stripped down and gritty this first film was in some respects. Yeah, it, you know, it's got what would become the customary lavish Bond villain lair, but that was pretty much it. There was no flashy gadgets from Coup Branch. It was just James Bond, his skills as a spy, and his trusty wall for PBK. As we're going to go into all the ingredients, I want to just pick up on something you said in there, uh, is that, that we all come at it from a different point in time and the muddled chronology, first of all, of the books, then the film productions, us receiving that information is something that comes up on your podcast and all your topics all the time that we come 
at these films at a different point in time. And w whenever we receive them, it kind of gets cemented in our DNA in a weird way where it's beyond an analysis because this was our first touch when we watched movies, really, we felt those films. It wasn't really, I, I didn't follow the storyline so much as as much as yeah. I felt what was going on on, on screen. And, and I even didn't, for me, they all blended in because it was one of those marathons I watched. I think it might've led up probably like you said to Octopussy or one of the other ones before, but these marathons used to come on regular television around the holidays, especially like you said, and then we would go through them as a family. Even back then I was so strict. I was, I was a weird little kid that was, had a lot of strict rules about everything already. And, and I picked up on that. Like I picked up on Luke Skywalker looking different in Empire Strikes Back. I was like, is that Luke? What happened? But you know, you don't really, you don't realize that it was an accident in the face. You just kind of pick up on these little things. And I was so strict about the rules of how you wear your suit and how you move across the screen. And for me, Roger Moore, who is also my kid, uh, childhood James Bond, obviously he was the one that was on, like you said, that was on all the promotional materials and, and it was kind of sold to me as Bond from the world. But I was already in a big defense as a kid about that's not James Bond. You don't know anything. That's James Bond because my father had exposed to me in this way. And I, I remember getting into early uh, school fights about who'd seen what and who is the real James Bond. And I was really aware of, of, of the, the ruthlessness, but also just the, when I watched the films, I love, I love Roger Moore for his charm. And you really felt what came across with his interpretation was that he had fun being Bond. And that was sort of a great credit to him after that sour relationship with Connery, how it all ended. But at the time you didn't, I didn't even know any of this. The only thing I knew is what, when I saw Sean Connery, for the first time with the famous introduction and them him leaving the casino i wanted to be him i want to look like him i want to move like him i just wanted to be. when i saw roger moore i never felt that i was thought oh he's very charming he's cool but he's you know he's a he's more of a simon templar persuader is very uh daft and very quick but i never wanted to be roger moore and so that was my early kind of connection to this like you said we come at it and then we re-evaluate them through different times come back to it and kind of delve into it again and maybe like you for this for maybe two i've never had read the books and then maybe two years ago i went finally went through them all and uh, it was great fun seeing the actual source material well, yeah, that, that leads on to my next question, which is going to be before we start on the long road of possibly covering each of these films one by one in many oh, yeah. future episodes, let's discuss first the books by Ian Fleming. Which books have you read? And if so, you know what are your thoughts on the source material upon which much of this franchise I, I've is I've read based? them all, but again, I've read them in a weird order, so I didn't help myself. I should have gone through them in chronology, but I've read them in terms of my favorite Bond films. So I first read From Russia With Love, and then Dr. No, and then Goldfinger, and then sort of in chronology a little bit. So cr chronological order to oh, yeah. for the books, right? is Casino Royale first published in 1953 and then each subsequent year it looks like you know you, you got Living Let Die in 54, Moonraker in 55, Diamonds Are Forever in 1956, From Russia With Love in 57, Doctor No in 1958, Goldfinger in 59, For Your Eyes Only in 1960, Thunderball in 61, The Spy Who Loved Me 62, On Your Majesty's Secret Service yeah, 63. next. 
Yeah. And then you, you only live twice yeah. in '64. Man with Golden Gun in '65, and then you've got Octopussy and the Living Daylights, which in came out posthumously, which was us. Yeah. So the Man with the Golden Gun is the last official. Because he, he died. He died yeah, in '64, didn't he? Man with the Golden Gun was sort of, it's a, it's a, the one of the weakest books and one of the weakest films, and it's a how of, dare you? How <laughs> dare you? Yeah, we're gonna get into it, but um, <laughs> but, but th that was part of the fun of finally looking at the source material is that you come with it with the history and with this idea of the movies and till till this day i cannot get over that from russia with love comes before dr no i can't mm, Even no. The list, yeah. I cannot. and you see references of course in dr no in the novel that live and let die he's already in jamaica so the the events of live and let die mm. are feeding into dr no and you're like that's i just can't it's it's so seeped into my uh, it just goes, it's like petting a dog uh, the wrong way. It's like a lion at the, at the back, you know, it just goes against my grain so hard. And But it was part of the fun of dissecting and seeing actually, I was actually pretty shocked that reading the books, I really appreciated Fleming, his style, his sort of background, his, his, his everything that it took for him to create this. But I also at the same time, which is rare, that it increased my appreciation for the movies because i for me the real james bond in its fullest form is only the movie james bond i'm not a fan of the bond in the books he's sort of very upper crust very tough very a uh, thing that connery cancels out just by his presence his working class swagger he that he brings james bond in the movies is a is a lot different than fleming's bond and he they weren't happy like you said when they say darby and the little people and they were like oh god no we gotta have david niven we gotta have Cary grant we gotta cast somebody who can who can get this idea of fleming across he was very unhappy with the casting of this glorified stuntman uh, that he saw mr universe you know uh, edinburgh milkman but in the end it was exactly that 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 saved the movies. I think if you start off with Roger Moore, we wouldn't have not had this this long lasting franchise. He was just the perfect. It was so many things came together to make this happen that we're going to get into. But the casting is really if you fail with who Bond is, you got nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's got to really hit. Right. Concentrating on that that sixth book in the series, then Doctor right. No. That's that's the first Bond book I've read. The first of Fleming's books, and it was read in preparation for this episode. I, I'd never read any of them before. It, it's one of those things that I kept finding myself <laughs> <laughs> almost gasping at some of the terminology which is used in the book. Right. And it is very much a book of its time in 1958. And if you were reading that book in 58, nothing would have probably felt out of place. But reading that book in 2022, just it's, it's very much politically incorrect comments yeah. made and some of it actually made me gasp i i was just taken aback by some of the use of, of words which we would never use these days and it, it took a, a long time you know getting through that book for me to acclimatize to that but once i got past that there was something that was comforting about reading a book that there was no reference to things which we just take for granted these days it was it, there was no internet there's you, you you you're reading about a te you know the technological limitations at the time in the 50s and there's nothing in it that's even that far-fetched 
Yeah, and the great thing is, like you said, there's a great comfort in kind of knowing what's going to happen in the movies and really knowing the character, where he went. We have, a, you know, we have, by the time we read this, we have a 35, 40-year history with the character. Yeah. We know exactly. So when you read it, you're like, what's there? What's left out? How does he convey it? And for me, the biggest, I wasn't really having so much problem with the political incorrectness or the, the English-ness of it, the colonial things. What I really had a problem getting acclimatized to was that we are so privy to Bond's thoughts and doubts and it makes him seem a lot weaker and a lot more squeamish and a lot more mm. because we are and when you see Connery move you don't have there's no doubt he's a, just an all-out lone wolf pro in the best sense of the word you know when we have these great anti-heroes of the 60s you know we got Yojimbo in 1961 from Kurosawa to Shiro Mifune then we got Dr. No in 1962 and then we got Fistful of Dollars in 64 Clint Eastwood the man with no name I mean we don't need to know any of their background they're just there they walk on screen and they're not these you know broken down cathartic overanalyzed heroes we get these days with all their foils and weaknesses and neuroses like I hate this stuff and I I'm, I'm a son of that generation of hero, the great anti-hero, the, the ruthless guy kills in cold blood. And that's what for me Bond was. And when I went through the books, it was really jarring to be privy to his sexual perversions, but also to his just like, you know, doubts, like I said, and because we hear his thoughts and, and that makes him seem a lot more, that made him seem really removed from what I wanted to hear. And even though I kept picturing Connery in the role and actually a, a few years ago I, I did all the book covers with Connery and with the, even the Roger Moore films and on Her Majesty's mm -hmm. Secret Service I had Casino Royale with Sean Connery that was sort of a good cleansing project for me what I wanted to see in my fantasy I wish he would have done them all yeah. but it that was it that was took I think the most brain power once I got over that and it kind of sort of became easier to edit in my head as I was used to the language and the, the language really is great. It's that really short-paced Fleming style, like bam, bam, bam. That style he learned at Reuters, being a correspondent and in the war. That 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 he 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 really is seductive and and great. And they, you just fall into them. They're great fun to read. Yeah, I just you know I I can't wait. To, I don't know what order I'm going to read them in now because I've started off with book number six. Right. Like, do I go back now and start from Casino Royale? Or... Yeah, Casino Royale. Uh, it became really clear for me. I sort of did it in order. I got all my favorite films out of the way. But there was a really, there's a, you know, uh, I mean, You Only Live Twice is uh, just bizarre. I don't, oof. so I was like, okay, now after You Only Live Twice, I have to see Casino Royale. Because Casino Royale, again, it was it was weird to get that bitter taste of, of that era. I hate the Craig era. I hate this new, I can't get over. It. I was really hard to get that out of my taste and kind of force myself to picture Connery and picture him in, in the role. And, and once you get there, there's really a lot of it became clear for me too, that uh, when they always justify this new kind of sensitive bond, it's it's always every generation, whether it's Dalton or Brosnan or Craig, says we got to go back to the books and we re-examine the book bond. And I would have dismissed it and said that's bullshit. That's not the the because I would assume it's Connery. It's it's Fleming is Connery, but that's not true. They have a point that the book bond of Casino Royale is very much 
much more Daniel Craig and more sensitive and something I hate. I don't want it. So for me, Bond is only fully realized on screen, like I said, because for me, it was seeing that dark, handsome, just even cooler than Marcello Mastroianni, just not even English looking. Who is this guy? Like Sean Connery is for me that personification and the way he personified it with Terence Young. And and that is something I wanted to find in the books and it's not in the books. And to Fleming's great credit, he later on said if he, as he got to know Connery and he got to see the films, he said he admitted that he, if he would to write them again, he would change them. He would change Bond, which is basically the best compliment you can give. Yeah. And I want to say one more thing about the books. It's also kind of interesting when you, when you deceive so in the movie oh yeah let's talk about the film because it will come clear what i'm saying about the books i'll just insert it in the parts that i think are missing or lacking or or changed so the opening titles were by morris binder now we hear the now familiar james bond theme music here for the first time by monty norman and then it segues into something of a typical swinging 60s tune and then into three blind mice it leads then into the opening which is two quite brutal assassinations in jamaica on colonel strangways and his secretary and then following this we cut to england and we have one of the all-time great character introductions at a casino let's talk about the first time we ever see james bond the house will cover the difference. Yeah, madame. Oui, monsieur. Changez, s'il vous plaît. Carte. Carte. Neuf à la banque. I need carte. another thousand. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to um, raise the limit? I have no objection. It's not possible, madame. It's illegal, monsieur. No. It's suivi, monsieur. Looks like you're out to get me. It's an idea at that. Yeah, I think it is the greatest intro of any character in cinema history. And I think I it, 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 it absolutely is. It's just, and whether it's the greatest quote, I don't know, but it's certainly up there. And, and that's also this, this, this weird idea of, um, it says a false idea of progress that we get with Bond. When we tell the Bond narrative that's out in the world, it's always like, oh, Connery was just killing people and he raped all the women. And then Moore came in and he was charming and light. It's not true. The, Sylvia Trench, you know, the first intro of Bond, she objectifies him. She picks up Bond. She's actually in charge. And he just reacts in a way that most heroes would not. He takes his time and, and his response with the cigarette in mouth and his answer. And it's just so assured. And we're, he's not after. He's not a gentleman. You know, he is just absolutely a character fully formed in the first two just saying his name and the way we introduce him in all these forms of close-ups there's actually when you go back they often reference who are as with paul mooney by william detale as sort of the the blueprint for this introduction when we see who are as from the back then we see his hands 
then we before we get to Paul Mooney reveal, we have all these shots of these close-ups. And I've watched that again in, in comparison, but I must say it, it's a different animal. It is there, but it doesn't have that snap as that intro has uh, in Bond. And it's just, I mean, it's perfection. And that, that whole kind of opening sequence is taken from Casino Royale. So they, the, the, the script is very clever in that it condenses and trims the fat very much. So by the time we get like uh, we get through the intro, we are fully formed and aware who our character is just by seeing him move around. Oh yeah, it, you know, in, in terms of character introduction, th- there's very little that comes close. You've got I don't know, Harry Lyme in the Third Man. You've got the introduction of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've got the introduction introduction of Rick in Casablanca. Sheriff Ali in Lawrence of Arabia, Omar Sharif's character, that is one of the most amazing character introductions ever. But, you know, there's very few which are going to be as as just outright cool as as this one. You get Yojimbo from the back scratching himself and, and seeing that giant mountain pass and then hearing that music, that Yojimbo theme, like... Uh, it's just incredible. And it's also very kind of, you don't see his face, you see his movements first, very much Yugimbo and very much like the lonesome, uh, fully formed character. Where does he come from? What's his background? Who does he know? What's it? Nobody cares. You're just following him for the rest because that's what the camera does and and that's what where 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 we go and to have the like you to go back to the music to have the bond theme kick in as a light motif when he talks and this is something that every film would then do to as soon as the bond theme kicks in we we know we're on and and that's the first in his respond bond james bond that that's the when the music kicks in and it's peter hunt the editor i think who's credit for using that again he just peppers it in through the movie and that's just so great and we're we're just taken on a ride through style and it's just effortlessly cool in a way that is completely timeless and he's not the eaten snob the, the David Niven of the books. He's not the upper class tough like Moore, who's very charming and sort of hello, hello. He's not. He's just something that we've never seen in the UK, especially. He's dark. He's swarthy. He's Italian looking. He's like cooler than Marcello Mastroianni. Like, who is this guy? Like the eyebrows, just the, his tanned look. There's something he completely blows up the room. And whoever he's with, you know, and so I, I think, and especially in the early three Connery movies, there's just it's just unrivaled and that's very much gives birth to this bond phenomenon of the of the 60s that it really had an impact on culture fashion design architecture music the entire society the attitude of that hero the anti-hero the lone wolf professional so to speak the killing and cold blood that's not from the books that's created for the movie is terence young assured grip and guiding connery in that and he sort of when i love terence young i think he's the, the greatest Bond director and I will love him forever because he when he was asked uh, tell me the three ingredients for the success of, of 007 he said Sean Connery Sean Connery Sean Connery <laughs> and I think this is to to come back to the to the fathers of Bond of course we have we have Fleming but we also have you know Sean Connery who was a tough life in Edinburgh and he was in the Navy then we have you know Terence Young a bon vivant uh, but he used to be a, he was a tank commander in World War II you know we have Ken Adam who's a RAF fighter pilot we have Broccoli and Saltzman these brash self-made risk-taking men of that time all these fathers come in to create that persona they just are assured how to 
to move in this world, what a lighter to wear, what watch to wear, how to wear your cufflinks, and all this st these style choices set it so much apart from the Mickey Spillane hard-boiled you know, film noir heroes, gangster stuff that we had before. It's a complete new mix that has never been rivaled. But yeah, you know, the, the, like you talk about the fashion and stuff and, and the things they influence. Right, Tony, I wear dive watches, right? I love dive watches. I don't dive. Yeah. Bill, Bill Scurry dives. Bill, Bill Scurry's a qualified diver, right? Right. But I wear dive watches and I've asked myself why and I think, you know, it's apart from the fact that dive watches are huge amongst watch aficionados, but it, it's ultimately because of the fact that Bond was wearing a Rolex Submariner in his early films. Right. And it it's because he started it and it's because they became iconic through the Bond films. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it really is uh, Terence Young's, um, uh, he's often credited with, and Connery credits him completely with this creating Bond for him because he he's sort of decked him out in all the gear, as he said, he took him to his tailor in Savile Row and he got the shirts made. He took him, he really took him in, became like a father figure because he and Connery shared a lot of the humor. And I think even that got him through the time when Fleming or the producers might've been a little bit more critical of Connery the, the fact that Terence Young was such a fatherly figure and everybody of the crew says that about Terence Young, that he used to give these big, you know, lunches and he was such a bon vivant, always caviar and always spending money. They always said he, he would spend the whole money that he earned on the film before the film was over just because he was so generous inviting the whole crew on set. And that whole, you know, jet set lifestyle of having Noel Coward come by and having all these people in Jamaica come through, that is felt that jet set lifestyle really is infused in the movie. It's not something that you can really fake or now we see in the later movies, I don't feel that ever because it's not there it's not it's the, it hooked that generation that really that post-war these these great men these great men who came from other fields who had to serve who had to were really living life to the fullest after the war and 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 happy and thankful to be there and it's felt the joyous family that was created in that these first couple of eon films before all went unfortunately nothing lasts it comes across and it, it it's very unique in the way I think it it can't be replicated. Yeah, oh, I agree. Certainly in terms of the way the Connery's Bond had that focus on like the finer things and he kind of gave like, you know, the, the British working class man something to aspire to in terms of dressing better and, and appreciating the finer things. I think all of that there is captured perfectly by Connery's Bond. And only because that's something right that I picked up on instinct. I knew nothing of British uh, club land when I was six years old. I had no idea of the, the caste system in England that you could be Toff or Cockney, you could be Marco Kane from the East End or something. I had no idea, but there is something I recognized he was above all of that, Connery, because again, he was not the sort of, you know, the Cary Grant, or he wasn't the David Niven type, or he, whoever else, to James Mason, whoever they wanted, that they knew of these kind of commandos that uh, Ian Fleming had based us on, the people he knew in the war. He was a complete new guy that, that was created on screen because it was really sort of Terence Young, it was Ian Fleming, it was everybody, but it was also Connery who 
like you said, we could identify through a, a presence with him that we felt he wasn't, he is really who he is off screen. He's this mm. very private, very assured, very lethal man. Like you would never cross Connery in private. It comes across in all his interviews yeah. that he is uh, very sure what money is to him. He's he he's very sure of his thoughts and you never have the impression that you can you can persuade him. He's very charming. He has a very dry humor, but don't fuck with him ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Something none of the other Bonds have. They're very much actors. So then 007, he's called to MI6 headquarters where we first meet Lois Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny and Bernard Lee as M. Now, these would obviously be recurring characters throughout the Bond franchise. And then we meet the Armourer, who I believe was played by Richard Burton's brother. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that, yeah. yeah now, no, Richard Burton was at some point considered to be James Bond, but then sure. his, his brother ended up playing the Armourer. Now, at M's behest, the Armourer takes Bond's Beretta and insists that he now carries a Walther PBK, which alludes to a previous weapons jam, which led to 007 being shot and hospitalised. Now, this is much more of a significant element in the book. Now, as mm-hmm. you've read them, Tony, maybe you can answer this for me. Now, as I've only read Dr. No... Was it in the previous book from Russia with Love where this weapons jam led to Bond getting wounded or was it just something that is imagined to have happened in between books? Yeah, they're sort of a little bit jumbled now that I can't really recall. I've read them in a great Russian. They all sort of blend together now. I always picked up on, which I greatly enjoyed, is and which kind of a lot of the serialized books at the time that were kind of this fast-paced moving thing, they don't really have the connecting tissues. And I recall the Bond books really always carrying over that he got poisoned in one and then he had to recover on thunderball that he had to go and recover from the previous book that's very much there so i assume that was there yes i i I do think so and even later the boozing gets to him as fleming gets more suffers from these physical ailments as he gets older and feels it bond is feeling it so that's very much mirrored and that's why it probably makes a lot of sense to read them uh, consecutive order not like i did jumping around because you do see it and uh you do see the thought that goes into where could i do next and, and matter of fact even in the, the really kind of failed books that the public didn't pick up on fleming did not want to just fill the formula he was always looking for a different angle and in the quantum of solon so these the short stories or spy who loved me this from a written from a woman's perspective and bond only comes in at the very last third of it it's it's a complete break from formula and the public rejected it sort of like what we have now with the films that we want the same things because that's what we like and that's sort of what uh, we can get into this a little bit later how it refers to in the times we live in now what we see with lord of the rings and star wars and the marvel universe is that the bond is the blueprint for all of that and what they're doing wrong now is exactly ignoring those lessons yeah uh, and sorry, yeah, so the books do have that connecting tish, uh, connective tissue. And like you said, we, we when we see the casino, we get Moneypenny, we get the Beretta, we get M. Bond is all there in the movie. And how long does it take to open? It's like 20 minutes. And, and that is really a great sort of uh, credit to the screenplay because it's a clever script that doesn't, that deals with the source material, the limited budget, which was only a million at a time, which was a sort of a le- real low budget effort. And uh, Richard Maybaum, Johanna Harwood, and Berkeley Martha, they, there was a previous script that was so ludicrous. Apparently, Dr. No was a monkey. 
it was all kinds of things where they were like, we're better than the source material, the typical, you know, Hollywood idea, like where we can improve on this. And they were really, it was really due to Broccoli that was like, no, 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 no. I want this, the book on screen. And it's a very clever script that highlights and embraces and the, the, even the choice of Dr. No as the first film is, is brilliant because um, it, it has enough adventure. Casino Royale was very pared down and the fact that they've already done a TV TBS pilot that was just so horrible with Jimmy Bond where Bond was in the play by an American. They kind of made them shy away from starting with the first book. The choice of Dr. No is, is clever because we do see him in his element. We have a bit of adventure. It's an exotic location and the fact that Jamaica is so linked with Bond. It's his birthplace. Jamaica mm -hmm. really is the birthplace of Bond where, where Fleming came up with him. And in his adventure, it's a great choice and a great script. And like you said, by the time we get to M's office, just a little banter with Money Penny, and we are firmly in this world. And the great arc of this movie, which we'll get to, is that it does surprise you so far. We are there. It's interesting. We're there, but we've seen a kind of, we've seen a little bit of that. We're still in familiar territory. And the fact that they added, which we'll get to, that's not in the book is where it completely knocks it out of the park. Yeah. So then M obviously gives him his mission and he goes back to his hotel because he's only got a couple of hours to make his flight over to Jamaica. But before that, he manages to find time to um, <laughs> get a hole in one with Sylvia Trench. And the great thing is she's after him, right? It's not Connery bending no. the arm of the girl going, no, you, you. it's not that. She's she's like, I like that. She sees it in the casino. She picks him up. It's a misconception there. Yeah, yeah. So then he's picked up from the airport in Jamaica by a Mr. Jones, who, when rumbled by Bond, um, after a bit of a fist fight, he bites down on a, on a cyanide cigarette. But that, that fist fight is the first time that we see that, that kind of, you know, ex... Um, what was he, Mr... Not Mr. Olympia, he was... Um, yeah, yeah, Mr. Universe. Mr. Like Universe, that's third right. Third yeah. place, yeah, third place, which is pretty respectable. I mean, pretty not bad when you see who else is there and from, you know, just working out with milk crates, you know, there's not like special equipment down in South Beach or something, you know, it's like this is still real old school Navy training. Yeah, and it's Peter Hunt who the editing for the fast-paced Bond fights that's really there through all of them. It's another misconception that sort of on Her Majesty's Secret Service, everybody, when they defend Lazenby, they're like, look how he fights. And you're like, have you seen Thunderball? This is so badass. This stuff still holds up to now. The, the, if you look at any other 60s fights, I mean, we have Batman the TV shows like Puff, Boom, Bang. It's so ludicrous. When you see the Bond fight, this stuff... The cutting on movement, the editing, just creates a pace that we haven't seen in the pre-Hong Kong era. It's yeah, yeah. The, 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 It really is fast, lethal, brutal. I mean, like, great Thunderball when he comes through the window and smashes the great plaza and kind of wraps the phone around and leaves him hanging. That's all, it's all in, in, in the first one already. And like you say, like he, um, that's actually, they shot out of order, so they shot everything in Jamaica first. So the arrival in the airport was the first scenes that they shot Meanwhile, Ken Adam was in Pinewood Studios constructing all the sets. Uh, he said the great thing about the early Bond films is that they really, they didn't even want to see sketches. They had seen his previous work on like Hornblower and Ken Adam had quite a reputation at that time already. And they were like, yo, go, go off and do your thing. We, we trust you. We want, we want your style and we're going to be in Jamaica doing our thing. When that ended, that was sort of the end for Adam as well. But the, the airport scenes where we see here's a change from the books that we have Felix Leiter, who's not in the book, 
uh, sort of reoccurring Bond ally. He is kind of here in the shadows already, you know, we're, we're questioning, is he, is he stalking Bond? Is he part of an assassin crew? And it's, it's, it's kind of the first part is a whodunit in Jamaica, kind of a detective. It's fun to see Bond in a, in a more pared down kind of detective role. They're going about the places, seeing the everyday life of a spy. Those details are really, really fun in the beginning. Yeah, no, I think the reason that, that Light is introduced in the film is because I think following that, that scene with Mr. Jones and, and biting down on the cyanide cigarette, Bond then meets Plydell Smith, who was his contact in Jamaica, but he is a more prominent character in the book. Yeah. Now, he introduces Bond to Strangway's friends, including this you know shifty Professor Dent, and then from there, he meets Felix Leiter and Quarrel, played by Jack Lord and John Kitzmiller. Now, in the book, as you said, Felix Leiter isn't, doesn't feature, but Quarrel is a past associate of Bond from right. a previous book. Yeah, he comes in from Live and Let Die, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And in the now, movie, they reverse it and make because it Because he had his son, son, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Obviously, Lighter wasn't in the book, and Bond and Quarrel were obviously friends by this point, having worked together in the past. But seeing that this is the first Bond story in terms of the films, Quarrel's trust has to be earned in the film. And right. instead, then they place him as a colleague of Felix Leiter, who is the CIA equivalent of Bond. It's a very clever script. And I also think a part of Cubby's smart idea of like uh, having something there for the U.S. market, which is always important. Like we do have an oh, yeah. ally uh, there, you know, they're going to be like, who are these limeys? And, and it's a great exchange between them. He's wearing the, the funniest Audrey Hepburn glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's great. You're right. So right. And this is part of the joy of the original mission. You get the three of them our great little team, like a little force that, you know, uh, Lighter turns around by the time they go to Crab Key, but that, that original little crew is great fun to follow. Yeah, yeah. Now, the main thrust of the plot in the film does differ quite a bit from the book by dumping, so to speak, the bird shit enterprise, the doctor. Oh, yes. Oh, now, this whole thing about, was it guano, this, this guano sort of plant. bird shit which they're harvesting because it makes it, you know, the world's best fertilizer. Yes. Yeah, they've, you know, they got rid of that. Which is great. Which I is think great. all the yeah. all the improvements later on that we we're not going to spoil the ending, but they get rid of all. Really, they improve one hundred percent the movie. And actually, through most of the movies, know what to take, and they have a great at least under the Eon original crew umbrella. They're really good at picking what works and what yeah. doesn't work in the films, in the books, and they get rid of a little as we get later to Honey and and her backstory. But you're right, like he has um. The whole initial who's done it, it has a lot of birds and Jamaica information. Yeah, because it's like this 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 wildlife agency or something has sent two <laughs> yeah. people out and they've gone missing. And and then... That's exactly where your eyes roll a bit. Yeah. Just now in 2022 or whatever, where you like, can't get to the point. Why isn't this about nuclear or something? But of course, the, 10 years later, the, the nuclear threat has been increasing. It was a clever update with the Cuba and whatever was looming that to, to update this whole thing a little bit because you wouldn't be like just an import export guana control of the bird shit, which later on also changes. It's like part of the control of the missiles and stuff but we we get to it when we introduce the the main villain but you're right it, it's a it's a good choice to dump all yeah that. because you know they they put like the, the the missile disruption technology is still in the book but instead the film puts the thing of the missile disruption at the fore and from the off right aside from strangway's death that's the main focus of bond's mission so then Bond meets Professor Dent. He has his suspicions aroused. Yeah, and the Dent arc really sort of, sorry, to grab this out of the thing, the Dent arc 
is the most discernible difference. That whole arc of Dent, Professor Dent, and is is really not in the book and is really what makes this film still a controversial film. It's it's featured all the most scenes that why we think Connery is this horrible misogynist. It's all in that that was inserted by the filmmakers. And they went, they shot several versions of the Dent arc and they went with the most ruthless one in the end because they figured they, by good instinct, they knew we, it can't just be, we got to go all or nothing, right? Like this is, it's going to be, it's, it is just got to hit. And it's the most ruthless part of this all. And it's, it's not any of these false Hollywood morality that we see later on, even when they try to copy it. This is really what the spaghetti Westerns have later with this absolutely ruthless, morally ambiguous hero that, that doesn't give, that doesn't operate like we are expected to operate. Yeah, yeah. He then becomes suspicious of Dent's involvement in Strangway's disappearance. And then once Bond leaves, Professor Dent takes a boat out to Crab Key, Dr. No's base of operations, which is disguised as a box like mine. And then the room where Dent is reprimanded yes. by Dr. No via an intercom. Now that is some classic Ken Adam production design. And this is really the money shot. Yeah. This caused applause from the crew when they saw this. When they, and you can imagine you come home from, from Jamaica, you're ready to shoot, you're expecting the sets on, on Pinewood and you're just hoping that this will all go well and you see that set and the, the way it's lit and you're like, the crew just applauded. And it was, it, it this is where we really enter a different territory, the different mm. territory on a different scale. We're entering a sort of comic book we're going away from John Le Carré and the sort of big, big critic of of Fleming, by the way, where you know the the smiley and the and the, and the sort of the real spy action in dirty back rooms and the and the seedy instant coffee and the real boredom of real spy life that he kind of made famous uh, and criticized Fleming for his you know adolescent schoolboy fantasies. But this is where Ken Adam really lifts it. On, on a level that's equal to Morricone doing your score or John Barry, it, it becomes a different territory. If, if that doesn't hit like it does, this theatricality of his background, sort of Dr. Caligari enhanced theater set design of a destroyed Germany. I think Christopher Frayling analyzed it often as these Führerbunkers of his youth. And that was too much for Ken, Ken Adam because he was a German Jew, emigre into London, flew bomber missions. And uh, and so he, he rejected that always. But it is in the DNA of these megalomaniac villains that we first get to see that scale and we hear the voice from the off and we see that giant grid overlaid in that oval and then just sitting there on the chair and we're like, okay, what? What is happening? That was magical to me as a kid watching this. This is beyond uh, the hero and, and, and the film I'm used to. Well, see, Tony, you've made a great comparison there with the John Le Carre novels and the fact that they've, they, they go for just gritty, down-to-earth realism. Now, right. That's there. Great. I'm all for realism. But you give me something like this where we see Professor Dent being grilled via intercom in a room that is completely impractical yeah. and serves no other purpose other than yeah. to intimidate. I'll take pure that style. any day. Yeah, pure style. Yeah. But my God, it, it sticks in your memory, doesn't it? It does. It, it makes and it memorable. It's fun to see that the the, the lair, the, the villain lair was really born there. Because again, we get into it a little bit later when it comes up in, in order here. But the, the, the in the books, that is not, that's another ingredient, like the humor, the dark humor that is not in the books. And that's in a vital part of Bond that's only in the movies. So uh, this is again where we see it come to a full fruition that Fleming could have never foreseen. 
Yeah, and, and in that amazing Ken Adam design room, Dr. No gives Dent a big spider in a cage to take with him and place in Bond's room. Bond then goes back to his room, finds that it's been searched, and later that night, he is visited by Dent's spider. Now, in the book, it wasn't a spider, but it was like this huge poisonous, was it a centipede or a millipede? It was a centipede, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, Fleming, now you talk about how Fleming made you see a side of Bond, like that internal monologue. Yes. I think in this part of the book, he does a great job of conveying that Bond, for a rare moment in his career as a spy, was terrified. But I think the same thing is, is done by Terence Young and Sean Connery in the film with the spider, because, and Sean Connery hated spiders. Yeah, but when the spider's on his arm, there's like a, a, like a glass screen, and the right. spider's on the glass, so Connery's not at any risk of coming into contact with his spider, but he plays it perfectly, and he looks terrified. And me being a hopeless arachnophobe, <laughs> and have yeah. been since I was a kid, that scene always, it just makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And it's a part of that exoticism that that you know, uh, post-war England, you, you audiences, you didn't, you just never got to see that type of. We really go from that interrogation room to the spider, just picks up pace and pace and pace and pace. This film, what the great movies do, they hit you with it where you hope it's going in a certain direction, and it does cash in on everything. And not to forget something that I just I, I relished was Bond preparing the room to see him move about as a spy, like checking the suitcase, prepping the door with yeah, the, hair, the hair, on the door, seeing yeah. it not there, but then not being so flustered by it. It's just the way it all felt so like, I, I've never seen, I love details like that. Like, like we mentioned on our Conan episode, when we see them, you know, actually prepare for the battle. We see where they're all going to ride in and where the spears go. These things are in the great movies in Seven Samurai. We see a lot of the preparation. These are the details that I love to see. I don't want to see him surf a tsunami. I don't care. Like, I, I want to see the things in preparation and the layout. Like, who show us who this guy is. Don't tell us with a bunch of backstory. Just show us. And that's the seductive part. And you're right. In the books, the, the inner monologue, when it gets really weird when it comes to torture and sadism and sexuality with Fleming sometimes, where he's almost confessional. Uh, there are points also later that differs in the torture sequences where we are privy to Bond's thoughts that are just great writing, short, fantastic thoughts that are they electrify the reader. You, you're right there with the spider. Oh, the centipede, like you said. You feel that crawling on your flesh. He's able to convey that. And obviously Jamaica enhance that when you when you sit there and you see he was he was he was always uh in nature he, he didn't have glass windows in his villa he in golden eye he he had only the shutters he let he wanted nature inside he was diving on the reef he he, he was always very keen to to heighten his senses to all those and that comes across in the books very much Oh, it does, yeah. So then after that, Bond revisits uh, Plydell Smith to find out more about Crab Key, and we meet his, his assistant, Miss Tarot, who informs them that the files they had on Crab Key were last with, with Strangways. Now, on his way to pick up Miss Tarot, Bond is tailed, and we have a brief car chase with, you know, it's got the typical process shots of Connery driving, right. and then after they go over the edge of the mountain, he gets to Miss Tarot, and it's clear that she is shocked to see him alive. It's obviously a trap, but Bond, being Bond, he's still got time to bed her. Yeah. 
and then he calls for a taxi for them to go out and get dinner but it's a trick and it's in fact the p- local police who then take her away and then this is the scene for me now this yeah, is where this bond is the this is the scene, this, the is scene. The scene exactly. this this might be the scene in all of bond yes and maybe i'm I, maybe i'm getting ahead of myself because we haven't even got to some of the stuff like you know gold no but i feel yet. i feel you this is when you watch, it's still there. It's still like you said, the process shots. We can, we are movie lovers. We we love this stuff. We can appreciate. We don't. It doesn't. It doesn't disturb us. But to a modern audience, they they can say we can't say anything against this sign of the times. But this scene, there's nothing like it now. No, it's just. Now he, he he sets this trap for Professor Dent. Now Bond is just sat there. He's he's playing patience with the cards. Yeah, and again, the details, the time passing, they take their time. It's not right away, and he comes. It's a couple of hours, yeah. and he and the light goes down. He sets on the record, and we cut, and the record's off. We, the music's gone. We know time has passed. We see what he's laid out in, in the card game, and, and the guns. He's not even holding the gun. He's sort of just the, the room is dark. He put the pillows under the bed to simulate them laying there. And we hear the noise and he grabs the gun slowly. And there's so much tension and, 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 and amazing. It's just, yeah, it's all built up. Drop it, Professor. I'm behind you. It's funny, I thought you'd turn up sooner or later. Sit down. The girl talked. But of course, and they were suspicious at the Queen's Club anyhow. When it turned out you were the only one who'd seen Strangway's new secretary. And then later at the lab, you made no reference to the fact that Strangway's samples were radioactive. Very clever, Mr. Bond. But you're up against more than you know. You shoot me and you'll end up like Strangway's. And you killed him? He was killed, but never mind how. Who are you working for, Professor? Well, you might as well know, as you won't live to use the information. I'm working for... Mr. Smith and Weston. And you've had your six. So then, Professor Dent, who having fired six shots into the bed where he thought Bond was sleeping, he then ad- admits that Strangways was indeed killed by him before making a grab for his now empty gun. And then you've just got that, you know, that line from Bond. It, when I went back and I watched these films, starting a Doctor No and watched them, I, I, I won't say I watched them all the way through because I did kind of get to the, the Brosnan era and I did yeah, kind I, of stall. I zone out, yeah. When I saw this first film and he says that line, it's a Smith and Weston and you've had your shirks. <laughs> and then he just shoots him. He shoots him once, he goes on the floor and then he shoots him again and he kind yes. of arches his back as if he the first bullet didn't kill him, but the second one did. That's the one. That's, That's the, the one. one. You still can justify because he's yeah. reaching for the gun. He's sort of trying to make it. You can justify the first one, but the second one is just the delicious one. That's the one where you go, oh, who is this guy? You know, we see it a little bit in her bending her arm and, yeah. you know, she's trapped and she's like, you know what? I'm going to have it and then I'm going to arrest you. And that's something that that is like, wow, now we're entering a moral zone that is never that's the bond doesn't cross in the books. He's, he's sort of even sometimes very understand, you know, he's called them all bitches, that bitch. But in the books, but he in a weird way, he's more pro- 
the women in the films are more progressive and also less progressive. Bond, they go in and out of it. It's, it's a very interesting, touchy exchange. But here he goes beyond and it's followed sex with murder so right after the other that obviously they fuse. And in a young boy's mind, of course, for me, that completely blew me away. All of that. I was like, what is happening? This is and it was cut from TV for many years. And uh, I've seen the versions when I was young. I, I, I and then there was this myth about the scene and they would cut away from him shooting him again. That last bit was missing. And so it, it was it almost created a myth on its own. Like we see many times with Han Solo shot first, right? Yeah. Like we see that that uh, Terrence Young does it again in um, Red Sun when Alain Delon shoots an, a defenseless guy and just shoots him. And and it, this is very much the anti-hero that, that the smuggler, the bounty hunter was created later in Star Wars, you know, uh, that, that we fell in love with again as kids. But here it's in its rawest form and it has, still has an impact. It packs a punch to this day. And the other thing that makes it for me, Tony, is whether it was editor Peter Hunt's decision or Terence Young's or a combination both just discussing how to best cap that scene is instead of him then shooting Dent and then it mm. cut into the next scene, it cuts back to Bond, he takes the silencer off and he blows into it. Yeah. And it's just that little perfect full stop to the scene, which it just makes it for me. And it's great. We see that earlier when we get Marguerite Lavoie's beautiful Miss Jamaica when when we when she first tails him at the airport and she licks the light bulb. These little touches yeah. that Terrence Young gave her just lick the light bulb and she's yeah. like, Why? It's yucky. Right. I don't want to do it. And it's like, no, do it, do it. But but she's evil that comes like, Yes, you're evil. <laughs> exactly. Or the the visceralness of when she hits quarrel with that with that um whatever it is, a stone. Yeah, the it's light bulb. bulb. Yeah, yeah, it's a light bulb. And she cuts his cheek. It's very, yeah, very yeah. visceral and these little extra it goes the it takes these details take their time. I even for the first time noticed that when he gets done with the first fight, his knuckles are bloody. They're scraped. They're scraped in the first fight. This is something no 60s film took their time with. It really is almost like, yeah, Connery went full force. You, you never know. You really question, like, did they even hold back on this? So um, that realism, even though it's so comic and over the top by this, it's always holding the balance. It's never going. And this is what the subsequent films really struggle with later is to find that language that the first couple have. So then Bond and Quarrel make their way to Crab Key. They hide their boat. Bond grabs some sleep and the next morning he's awoken by singing. And we have, you know, talk about the introduction of Bond. <laughs> then we've got one of the iconic moments in all of the Bond series, which is the introduction of Honey Rider, played, of course, by Ursula Andress. Yeah, this is the final ingredient in the in the entire mix. And when the Gleaner, the, the Jamaican, the... the, the the Kingston newspaper was reporting they were on set. Well, of course, it was a big, big to do when the doctor the Fleming is being shot in Jamaica and they, they're, they're seeing the airport scene and they're like, this is quite, I don't know, this seems slapdash, low budget. I mean, this I don't know if this is going to be a quality film. And then the first shots of Ursula Andres leaked around and became around the island and people were aware and seeing her in that white bikini, everybody was on board. Everybody from that moment on, they were like, hey, we got something here. We haven't seen this. And it really was her powerful introduction of the first Bond girl, fully fleshed Bond girl, even though Sylvia is, is really a Bond girl, but it is Honey Rider in her form uh, that that is just as iconic as the leading man here in the first one. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, what an introduction. 
And even the underneath the mango tree, I don't know who's responsible, uh, Monty Norman probably, but in the book it's a different song. And I don't know the song, but it sounds it sounds really complicated and different. It's it's a different lullaby sort of. And you're like, but that first when he answers her back with underneath the mango tree, it's it's stuck in my head ever since. You hear it once, and and that, there it is. It's it really is. It has these light motifs, the classic Wagner themes that we get with every introduction. That that's. They, they just they just stick with you forever. And, and Honey, Quarrel and Bond then, and then chased by what well, we later find out to be Dr. No's henchmen. And then after Bond is forced to kill one of them, like one, one kind of straggler who kind of comes back to, you know, to make sure no one was hiding. And then a great, the classic sort of SAS assassin style yeah. that also we're not used to seeing in movies, but we know through later, of course, Christopher Lee and who is really there. And when we see any documentary up on this, this is how, you know, the commandos used to do it. You know, yeah. they come up from behind. Of course, you don't want to make a noise, but this is really also remember, this is not the Hollywood fair play. They would always alert the, the villain. Hey, and then, you know, yeah, they turn yeah, yeah. around and then you're allowed to kill him. But Bond just comes through the water with this great ninja tactic of breathing through the bamboo and hiding out. This is a cool, I loved this as a kid so much. All these little cool tactical details, you know, and, and, and that set, the scenery of that, that rushing waterfall, that beach, which was a private beach, and, and Lone Coward and Ian Fleming, they introduced everybody because these were all private properties, of course, of that real Jamaican jet set. And so that, that entire crew had access to all of these locations that really you couldn't go there as an outsider. And a lot of the strength of the first movie is that inside knowledge of, you know, of casting so many locals that were really there of the time. That's it really stands out. It's not this completely shipped in crew from Hollywood or wherever. So professional. It really felt like a homegrown family type of environment. And, and, and it comes across, especially in, in those when they finally enter Crab Key, we enter this exotic world. And if you think back, where have we arrived from the, the dingy London rain or or even sort of now we're in a completely adventure movie and sort of that this is a clever uh, choice to pick up Dr. No because he does have those elements in the first Bond movie. It's not just high class casino life and then, you know, torture scene like in Casino Royale. No, no, we're fully in in, in, in something the 60s are craving, uh, you know, postcards, escapism and, and Jamaica is the perfect backdrop for all of that. That henchman he disposes of. I just love that line where Honey says in horror, why? And Bond's response is, because I had to. Yeah. And then Honey then tells Bond her story and, and of her marine zoologist father who went missing and then... Yeah, this is quite a bit changed from the, the books. She is more of a, she's called Honey Child and she has a Jamaican accent. Of course, she's supposed to be like a native girl and, and they had to paint Ursula Andres and kind of layers of of brown because she's Swedish and arrived all pale for, on the set. But her, the rape they kept, I think that's mentioned, but her, they sort of, it's it's strange because they almost give her more agency in the film because she's a bit of a more of a naive native girl in the book and Bond sort of doesn't want to sleep with her because she's so innocent and more childlike and he constantly refuses her and she's she's more like yeah I want to become a call girl later on I'm going to take this money I make from the from the shells and then I want to become like a high high class hooker sort of and Bond sort of yeah like, but, well she's also selling these shells isn't she because she she's got like a, a an obviously broken nose, isn't she, in the book? Right, and right. she wants to go to America to get surgery and to get her, her nose corrected. 
there is like this tragic backstory to her but some of that then is carried over into the film and she talks about you know the man who took advantage of her and right. she got her revenge on him then with a the black widow spy then she says that it took took him days to die and then yeah, and then bond goes oh, don't make yeah, a hand don't make a hand of that <laughs> yeah and, and, and in fact in terms of just one-liners this is something that uh, you know people give credit to Roger Moore, but it's it's a direct lineage from from Connery to yeah. Schwarzenegger. You know, this is from shocking in, in Goldfinger when he electrifies the guy. But it's all there. You know, when he first kills the driver and he brings him around the the, the country club and, and and he says like, watch him, make sure he doesn't get away. Sort of. This is sort of improvised lines that when the first one works. Terrence Young encourages Connery to go off script and and a little bit. They share that humor that they have that dark humor or when the herds his first like you said they're tailing him and the gangsters careen into the to the abyss with their herds he goes like and and, and the jamaican guy comes what happened and he's like i think they were on their way to a funeral yeah, yeah. that's little one-off like that's something that's well, that awesome. schwarzenegger that's schwarzenegger in commando when he says to the eight you know the stewardess about the guy he's just killed or don't disturb my friend he's dead tired <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And exactly something that why I I do love and forgive, even though I I don't like his bond as much more always because more acknowledges all of that. And he always credits Connery. And and that's he's such a perfect gentleman. Yeah, of course he is. That that he doesn't want to have ownership of it. It's sort of, again, when it's interpreted and then narrated to these sort of bond specialists that we get this false idea that this is Connery is a great humor and breaking always through this machismo that is there and the brutalness of it it's 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 always with a twinkle and 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 a lift of the of the eyebrow or something but it's it's never overbearing it's not part of the it doesn't become a thing ever which is great it doesn't no so then the three of them later that night they encounter the dragon as quarrel calls it which is an armored car (laughs) with a flamethrower and you know poor quarrel is then burned to death by it and then when the you know the henchmen get out of the vehicle and then bond tries to look back at his friends burning corpse and one of the henchmen says sorry we we ain't got no flowers i mean what a cold-blooded bastard like yeah and then bond and honey are then taken to dr no's lair where we see them undergo like this fairly thorough like radioactive decontamination procedure because the radioactive the the nuclear element the thing that caused dr no to lose his hands that's not in the book yeah, he loses his hands because of a revenge against the Tong, against yeah, the criminal yeah. organization. They smash him, and they kind of he they 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 in his in their punishment. That's where he loses his hands. Yeah. But yeah, to the dragon quickly. It's not a Ken Adam design. I wish he would have done it. But in the book, it's already silly. When like if I read this and when it came out, I would have been like, oh, how are you going to realize this? So this is the part that's the iffy part. I mean, we we accept it completely, but it's the part obviously in the marshes where you feel the the, the chassis is a little bit too big and wobbly and it would have been cooler to just use a tank or some dune buggy instead of painting it like an evil yeah. dragon with the mouth and stuff. So this was silly to me as a kid, but the kind of shots, the cinematography at night and the, the kind of danger of these forbidden lands kind of and the fire at night and the fact that, like you said, Quarrel dies is enough to get over the silliness of the dragon because, of course, Bond doesn't. He's a matter of fact guy. He never accepts this. But it's it's something that you would think in the book maybe could be put as native superstition or mm. something. But it doesn't work in the book and it doesn't work in the film. But that's fine because as soon as we enter, like you said, the the lair. Now we have it's a great sound design. It's like that. We all of a sudden we're aware, like underneath the Planet of the Apes, like we go through these doors and it's sort of brass texture and Ken Adam really 
encouraged everybody in Pinewood to, he had a bad experience with Pinewood before and he was hoping like, you know, that he wouldn't have to go through it again. And as a matter of fact, he galvanized everybody by bringing everybody together on the set. And he's like, I, guys, I really need you on this. I really want you to experiment with new textures and new materials. And that is really felt as soon as you enter the, 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 the mountain of Dr. No, we are in a different world and that really does set the template for all subsequent layers and the standard of the the villain because now bond is old world he's already an anachronistic specimen of like the royalty like her majesty right like the queen he's he's part of an old colonial he's he's always mourning that he's a, he's a dinosaur when he and the villains are really the ones that bring style and the modernism to it it's always it's a way to get over bond they're ahead of the times and he's sort of in their trap and and it's all conveyed again through just the style of it all and you're when like you said when they take the nuclear shower the, the mechanism they go through and the fact that they are sort of welcomed into it is also something i wasn't aware yeah of. because they, they're shown to their rooms in it by possibly the most friendly assistant of any bond villain i've ever yeah. seen yeah and it's great because we've been expecting you i hope these clothes fit you we didn't get your measurements until yeah. last night it's like you're like as a kid you're like ah you used to do the villains like i trapped you and now you're getting like even later bond films like i said we have you and 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 but this whining and dining and the bantering is something that was so seductive when you see it because you had never really this toying with each other like i'm finally facing a worthy worthy adversary is almost like from a previous era, maybe Dr. Moreau or, you know, the most dangerous game, Karl Zarlov, that that it's it's that great baronial, like, let's let's just I'm finally encountering encountering somebody who can appreciate my 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 work, you know, and this is is very cool to see that they are. They are they're going through this machinery and they get all decked out and the plush, the breakfast is ready as they come and you're like they've been expected and you see their bedroom and style and it's it's amazing and it's it, it again it finds another gear this movie uh, that that lifts you out of again what you've just seen we've just been in the adventure in the swamps and in this in this machine gun fire and attack mode and now we're in a, a super futuristic mars underground you know mm. uh, landscape you know, part of that seduction is the fact that that assistant showing them their rooms is so nice and welcoming. It kind of throws them off guard so then they don't question the fact that the food and drink that they've been given is drugged. And then after being drugged, you've got that really creepy moment with Dr. No who comes in and he's watching Bond as he sleeps. Yeah. And then after that, that, they dine with him. And then It's even creepier in the book. He kind of like... The, the bond is always voracious appetite. There's a great deal about details on breakfast and scrambled eggs yeah. and toast and jam. And, and this is very seductive. I always feel like I need rashes of bacon and toast when I when I read the bond books now, because that's it. it it's very vis visceral in that inflaming taste of alcohol and booze and, and smoking. It, it, it all feels very pleasurable. And so when 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 we get that great shot of just the shadow and we get again, we get just a close up of the metallic hands of Dr. No entering their room as they're passed out. And in the book, he kind of studies her body. He lifts the blanket. He looks at her naked body and we really feel this perversion, maybe lusting after because he cannot do with his hands what he wants to do. That's not so much in the book, but enough in the film to you get it. It's very clear. Yeah. And then they dine with him 
and then he reveals to them that he's a member of this organization called Spectre, something that wasn't part of the original book, where in the book yeah. his main goal was just the interception of other nations' missiles and the profit he could make from exploiting that. That comes up, yeah, Blofeld and Thunderball, which is a later a later book, uh, introduces Spectre. Yeah. So, and, and that's clever to make him already part of this, the, it's kind of the, the the vision they have from the beginning, Saltzman and Broccoli, to we, together with United Artists and David Picker, to make this a reoccurring running theme. And you see that planted in there that they're like, you know what, Spectre is already a part of a non-political league of supervillains, you know, that we're going to exploit later on. But then, you know, this introduction of Spectre in the film is carried over immediately then to the next film, isn't it, from Russia with Love, where right. they, they reference the death of Dr. No in early part of that film. And we already see Blofeld, which yeah. is great. Like, yeah. just his hand and the cat and something before we finally see him. It's a big buildup of him. And we get those little nods of not only the modernist kind of amazing lair that we have with the aquarium and the sort of Captain Nemo fish tank. Now we're under the ocean in this great, like, Dr. No takes him through to much more detail in the book of his life story and work and uh, Honey kind of, he, he doesn't want to bore her. He's, she's kind of the child in this in Bond and, and Dr. No banter. And it's a great detail how he hides the knife in his sleeve and while he's telling the story. And this is much done quicker in the film, obviously, because uh, you need to get through it by this point in the yeah, pacing. In the, in the book, isn't it? He, he manages to smuggle a knife and a lighter from the dinner table. But here, right. Dr. No isn't as easily fooled, does he? And he takes right. things off him. He sees it right away. He's like, very nice, Mr. Bond. And sort of the way uh, Fred, uh, uh, Wiseman plays uh, Dr. No, this is also a great theater actor, uh, Canadian Jewish mm-hmm. actor, grew up in New York. And, and of course, they wanted, uh, Fleming suggested Noel Coward to play uh, Dr. No, and uh, wisely didn't choose it. It would have been more comical. He gives it a great gravitas that is not the sort of Fu Manchu comic book thing everybody was afraid of. He plays him so ice cold and is really also the template for all the later villains. That joyous, like Dr. No, really is another one that hits it out of the park because he, the, the way he uh, dishes out the information and it's like you're just a stupid policeman he he looks he thought i thought you were more clever than this you know yeah. he's really disappointed it's, it's just like that little jab that he has he says hey, unfortunately i misjudged you you were just a stupid policeman whose luck yeah. has run out and he's calling bond like this super spy just a stupid policeman is literally like it is so withering right? like, it? it's, yeah it's great because we also see that Bond and, and, and him are on the same level because we do see this little cool inside joke that the, the, the filmmakers put in that he sees the Duke of Wellington portrait and he sort of just glances aside from Goya. It was stolen in 1961. So just the previous year. So this was fresh in the news. And this is sort of the twinkle of the eye things that, you know, um, I think it was credit to Joanna Harwood, the writer. She put that in. She said, wouldn't it be great if also Dr. No stole that painting? So. Connery walks up to the dining room area and he just sort of glances and like and you see it and it's look oh that's where that is you know it's yeah. like Dr. No really is part of uh, Spectre they're just like this this pirate they're going all over the world like doing evil things and sort of art collecting and it, it, it's again one of those those things that would never be in a Le Carre that's just a special mix that Bond does why it's so joy joyful so, so after this dinner scene then, Bond finds himself in a far less comfortable cell than the suite he was previously in. But what's not made clear here is that 
in the book, this was to be a test as Bond right. escapes into the ventilation system, which was the only way out, only for it to be like this torturous rat maze sort of type scenario. It's very much sort of like the, those um, pulp covers of the evil professor peering down and toying with his experiments. Doesn't he, he wants to torture is very much in the Bond books. It's in Casino yeah. Royale in the first book. It's that sadistic side of Fleming, that schoolboy, that that eaten, you know, upper crust, uh, a sadism that's often remarked in the English culture. And it comes across very much so in, in the books of this kind of like examination almost of like the limits of, of the human body. Yeah. And Bond is very much in this inner dialogue again, very cool to hear how he puts himself through the next phase and thinks it through and lifts himself up by just his training kind of gets him through all these yeah, difficulties. It, it's torturous, isn't it, in the book? It's, it's, it's at least a chapter, maybe two of him going right. through this like sort of torturous maze is the best way I can describe it. And one of the rooms which he, he crawls into is like this tiny room with about 20 giant tarantulas. Now that properly creeped me out the way it's described. <laughs> yeah. And in, in the book, Bond is left in really bad shape by the end of it. It's like the skin is ripped off his elbows. His, yeah, it gets his hot, feet are it's all blistering. Yeah. yeah, it's blistering. And he kind of sort of, he has to make a choice whether to protect his knees or his yeah. hands because the, the pipes heat up. And it's sort of, watching this, not being aware that this is much more drawn out, I would have loved this much more drawn out in the, in the movie because this is also something I loved as a kid. And forever, it's one of these things that we kind of cherish as kids, right? Like the train scene and, and, and uh, I always love movies movies on a train because I saw Russia with love and the same thing here I love a ventilator shaft whether it's Die Hard or Melodie L'Ascenseur with uh, Lino, uh, with Adieu Lamy with Bronson and Delon this escape out of the jail and in sort of confined situations and following the hero and being really with Bond alone we don't see this again in later movies it's all explosions in the next exotic location but this sort of simple commando breakout from Bond is quite unique and, and I love this part I, I really did love this as a kid the, the fact that he gets electrocuted and, and crawls through and in the book he's observed the eyes that kind of open these little portholes and see him suffer. And meanwhile, Honey, she's supposed to be pegged to the mountain naked and have the crab run, which is a Jamaican sort of phenomenon of these these crabs that go on a run and they, they go over her and supposedly eat her or you know feast on her body it's again something that dr no wants to observe her limits yeah because he says doesn't he that at the end of this bond is not expected to survive but then dr no will will, will study his body and, and kind of use him as just like an experiment in in the limits of human endurance yes and he very much is, is, that's where he met, manages like the the most dangerous game count zarlov is like i'm tested against the most dangerous prey the human and the, this it's almost the predator formula who do i fight the the secret agent now how much can he bear used to a common man or something and and he really is always looking for this because in the backstory of dr no he went through all of this he was yeah. tortured he was thrown into the bottom of the sea he came out of it he he had facial surgery and and to 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 reinvent himself as a businessman and then steal from them and then sort of create until he arrives and now he wants to he live this out again or take it to the next level this megalomania that we see which is so necessary in the villains that when they're more in the later movies like gangsters or newspaper men or even the mafia it loses everything who cares it's not interesting right the bond movies need that extra grander scheme of, of of perversion that that kind of looms and it's it's great because bond 
kind of gets himself through these stages by saying to tarantulas, that can't be it. That can't be this guy once more. I will not die here. That would be boring to him. So get yourself through this bit because something else is coming. By the time he gets to the heat and the blisters, the last he's like lying there, he gets himself up on the next ledge and he's just lying there and he's like, you know, that would be boring to him. There must be something else. So keep going. This is not the end. And isn't it like in the book, the, the final test is like some giant squid. Yeah, which is great, which is great and shit, right? Like it's great. That they, they get, it's totally not Bond, which happens a lot in the books. It's a great credit to why why it's also interesting to read the books because you will happen upon these things that are not just taken word for word for the books. Fleming will take these risks from time to time to go something really exotic and sometimes he pulls it off and sometimes he doesn't so all of a sudden when we get like he kind of gets ejected from this ventilator shaft into the gray ocean and it's you sort of you thinking like oh that was it he kind of gave it to them a favor with that you know why does he let him escape and then you find out he's actually in a cage in the ocean and you can really feel that Fleming works through some of his terror of the ocean because he was such a prolific diver and he knew of all this, but also the myth of the Kraken is something, you know, all kids, schoolboys love. We all love this from, you know, from Captain Nemo and something. And so he's all of a sudden in this eyes come out at him from the deep and you're like, what is it, a shark, uh, some kind of eel or whatever. But it's actually, in fact, a giant Kraken that Bond then now wrestles with, with these knives he had made from the from the ventilator grid yeah, so it's a much more fleshed out and thing, but you're also so grateful that they cut this. That this would have taken it into a complete more, especially with the time what was available and what they could do with a million dollars. It would have never, and it, w- it would have felt wrong for the new template they created for Bond in the movies. Yeah, yeah. In, in the film, and Bond finds his way into the, like this crew area, steals radiation suit, and then makes his way to the main reactor control room where Doctor No is is looking to topple a rocket being launched from Cape Canaveral and this is another great Ken Adams set and wow, Bond, yeah. you know, Bond sets the reactor to blow which, which is pretty risky really right yeah yeah he, he and Dr. No then fight above the reactor pool Dr. No falls in and Bond escapes having first of course rescued Honey Rider they, they grab themselves a boat and, and off they go just as Dr. No's base explodes now then their boat runs out of fill before later being rescued by Felix Leiter in the Navy and, and as their boat is being towed in, he, he uncouples it and they float off and he and Honey kiss and, and that's it. The end. Yeah, and it's another great theme that will be carried on through many of the movies, of, at least through the, through the Roger Moore era, where that's a great bow to wrap it up. That's, of course, not in the book. In the book, he goes back to London and he cares about Honey and about her operation. And he's like, oh, like you kind of like, OK, now it's like anticlimax, chasing anticlimax. Like, and in the book, it's just really, does he, in the film, it's just, does he get the girl? Great, sail off, happy ending, Bond will be back. You know, that's all we want to see. And it's so satisfying. It, that they have this there in the first one. They really come up with it in, in a great way. And as a matter of fact, what carries the movie is really Connery's chemistry with all his Bond girls, really. Yeah. They have nothing but great things to say, what a professional was, what a gentleman he was, what a good friend he was, actually. said. And Ursula Andres is no exception. She, in any of the behind-the-scenes footage, you see the, the great... She really is in love with him. And, of course, Ursula Andres is one of the great man-eaters of all time. She really is. She is a female Bond. I mean, she had everybody. She had Mastroianni and Jean-Paul Belmondo and uh, Fabio Testi. And she, she went with every single one of them. And you really feel that they have something special. And it's actually that ending scene that they shot first. And the chemistry and the behind the scenes of 
Bond and Honey is just magical. They have it right there, and they're still friends, or at least they were when they when Connery. She's still. You can see when she talks about him, she's just beaming. Yeah, and it's you know it's, it's what it did for her. She, it immortalized her. Right. Even though she's obviously dubbed in her Swedish accent, yeah. it's a little bit dubbed, and it's very sexy. The, the the girl, I forget who it was that dubbed her, but it's it's great the way that a slight accent and stuff. And of course, she 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 would have had that accent, but if you see her act in other films, you're really like it's not really up there. So it, it, she's immortalized with with the theme, with the help of the music, and of course, just her figure at the time just like gorgeous goddess coming out of like venus out of the ocean you know born from the sea and yeah it's it's the gray couple she's she's giving in many of the uh, of the um, italian posters she's given equal space to bond they're, they're the same size they they're, they're, of course for the italians is important sell it with the sex with the girl but uh, yeah she really is has a unique position among the bond girls yeah yeah so released on October tenth, nineteen sixty-two, in the UK, it would see a you know it wouldn't see a US release until May the following year. But it was made on a budget of one million dollars, went on to take a worldwide gross of sixteen million dollars, and thus started the longest running of all film franchises. Now I think you you pretty much answered this earlier, but Tony, just to confirm, where does Doctor No rank for you amongst your list of favorite Bond outings? Yeah, so we, we go through this obviously a lot, or the list has changed through the years, but it's only ever changed in my ranking of the Moore and Dalton films. It never, and this is where it ends for me after Dalton. I don't, I don't, I, Gold, Golden Eye was all right. I tried, but it wasn't there anymore for me. Even though all these guys seem like, great guys i'm not rejecting brosnan he has great things to say even he acknowledges sean connery is the greatest bond so i love pierce brosnan for that he's not claiming the throne so it's it makes it all good for me the ranking never deviated the only time where it jiggles back and forth for me is between the first two dr no from russia with love i usually give the first five films in chronological order as my favorite. But from the only exception is Russia with Love comes first because we do have some more ingredients come in. Like you said, the Spectre angle. Sean Connery is still in his prime beauty. The hairpiece of Goldfinger isn't there yet. So he's still incredible. And we have, of course, Robert Shaw. And this is something that there's another super spy. It's something, again, and no other film ever gets to do. We don't have the super lair and the super villain as much in the second one, but we do have the his equal, the, the mirror of Bond, and so to speak, in the in the Robert Shaw character. So I usually go, I go from Russia with Love, Dr. No, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, and then uh, whatever, I don't talk about that one, and then Diamonds Are Forever, and so forth. And then we go through the, the, the Roger Moore ones, which recently... I must say, it shifted for me quite a deal. I was always more the, the John Glenn, and I was like, oh, maybe on re-examining them on this latest run, I enjoyed Moonraker much more than I than I did the more realistic grounding. I was like, hey, let's let's go full force into Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker is my Roger Moore kind of t- era. Let's just go full globe trotting, uh, fun adventure type. How's it for you? Yeah, I've, I've always struggled to, to firmly. Put these films in, in in any strict order. Right. Doctor No is since this kind of late twenties, early thirties rewatch where I went through them all over a couple of years. 
Doctor that was always featured really highly because it was the one that kind of slapped me across the face and was just like, no, all of the stuff that would come later, the things where it would almost veer into into a parody of itself and, and things would become ever more improbable. There's none of this here. This is just pared down. And it's that scene where he, he kills Professor Dent. That right. for me is the is is what I think of every time I think of Doctor No, and it's just this efficient workmanlike but cold-blooded assassin. That scene for me just typifies what's great about this film. In prepping for this episode, I knew from Russia with Love would come up, and I knew I had a rough idea of how you felt about it. So right. I rewatched from Russia with Love. It, you know, it was it was the last thing I did before oh, great. Yeah. before this episode because and John Arminio and a lot of other people have sang the praises of that film and it's always been the one Connery Bond film that I've kind of neglected because it's just one of the ones that was underseen by me. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. It, it was and it, it kind of a lot of the things from it kind of blended amongst the others but you know I always remember the two gypsy girls fighting and oh, obviously yeah. Robert Shaw everything about him but there's other things about that film which I forgot that were in that film that I actually loved like uh, the character of Karen Bay you know his relationship with Bond and then it's also so interesting, right? Like some settings work for Bond and some don't. Like yeah. Istanbul, Switzerland uh, works great. America doesn't work for Bond. I don't like the American movie. I don't even like in Goldfinger when they go to Kentucky. I like the Switzerland bar, but I also don't like it in Diamonds of Forever. Las Vegas is just not something I want to see Bond in. And 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 later, you know, even San Francisco with, with Roger Moore. And it's like, it never works for me. The mafia doesn't work for me as an adversary. It, it has to be in sort of that European jet set or really exotic like far east japan or like istanbul that, that, that kind of orient express that's in the second one that that great sort of classical tradition uh you know that works or it's it's obviously up to everybody's liking but th- this is also something where the dalton films suffer from like miami and goldfinger has that a little bit but this is maybe why everybody's or from the classical guys of our generation, Goldfinger is always the one that's up there. For me, of course, it's like I, I follow Connery and where he looks the coolest. And that's in the first two. As we go on to cover these films one by one and I, and I reappraise them in, in more detail, maybe my view will change. But right. when I'm thinking of what I always see, and this is this is goes across all the Bond films. When I was a kid, my two favorites, without doubt, was Living Let Die and Man with a Golden Gun. And I still oh, wow. I always wow. love those. Wow, unexpected. But, right, but oh. that was when I was a kid. Right, but it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. as having reappraised them all in my in my 20s and then in more recent years, gone back and rewatched them. Without doubt, my favorite Bond film, the best Bond film, the pinnacle of Bond for me has to be Goldfinger. It's, it's just got everything. Yeah, it comes together. It's pre, pre-title pre sequence. Yeah. It kicks in. He's just in the white dinner jacket. Like, boom. It's just, oh, Shirley Bassey. Boom. It's gone. It's, it, it's, it's all there. And it, yeah. it's not it's it's not even my favorite Bond song. It's it's a perfect Bond song. Perfect, yeah. But having re- recently, it was when Stephen Simpson did the episode with James Hancock and they went through their favorite Bond songs. And yeah. It was the first time I'd ever listened from start to finish to Nobody Does It Better and thought mm. this might be Very the best good. one because it Very starts good. off small and it ends epic and it's just a fucking phenomenal song. And yeah. I thought, is that my favourite? But either way, if you take all of the main ingredients of Goldfinger, it's just all there for me. But yeah. the, these first two films... and Yeah, we- it's really, let's talk about the... Right, we always talk in terms of trilogies and like, oh, it's Indiana yeah. Jones or it's Star Wars. It's like, take the first three. Like, this is the OG 
without even counting, I think, which is now the most underrated is Thunderball, yeah, which is the highest grossing yeah. one. But it's the one you sort of that's a bit murky with with all the later, you know, uh, Kevin McClory case and actually yeah. big part of Fleming's horrible end that, that he had or sad ending that he didn't get to see or that will live longer was was the stress that that court case caused him. But like you said, just the first read is they, they just hit so hard. Yeah. You cannot believe that something is so fully formed in the first outing gets improved on in the second one like just add more coals to the fire and then the third one hits and then four and five also hit but just the first three let's just talk about it in terms of the trilogies like it's just i mean it's just wild that this comes so out of uh and it's never mentioned in terms of groundbreaking the set of the trees the untouchable that's untouchable like the, the fact that guy hamilton comes and takes over from terence young and it just manages to either enhance or, or or keep it going or improve on some parts maybe if, if you feel it's just absolutely an achievement um that is that is due to all these these different a hundred hundred people probably that we all don't mention but the music and it just all comes together and the fact there's the the, the abundance like the riches like the, the, the fact that we can even go on this big series like this we can go and this theme and this music and this music and this music it's just they're all great i take them all even for the films i oh, don't Love because yeah. you know you only live twice nancy sinatra i just the romance of this just you play the first notes and i'm there i'm right away transported into that entire world well, like tony this might shock you then but <laughs> in my 20s when don't I, say duran duran <laughs> no 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 in my 20s when i started to really get into those connery bond films you only live twice was my favorite yes yes I it was and I it, it was like goldfinger's the perfect bond film but right. going forward from goldfinger you got to ask yourself two things. Does Goldfinger feature a boat called the Disco Volante? No. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the fucking coolest name for it anything is, ever. It is. That's my dream. One day I want a boat or, or any big vehicle or vessel or whatever. And I want to call it the Just Disco Volante. Just be Largo, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is, has it got a musical score to match John Barry's music in You Only Live Twice? Because that is yeah. perfection. It's perfection. Even Thunderball, his like to anybody is Tom like, Jones. Nice. I, yeah. I literally live. I live literally three miles from where he grew up. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 the fact that they managed to the title sequences each time put one on top and put one on top and find another one where you go, yeah. okay, this is it. This is the whatever the recent one is is the one you. That's the one, right? Like that's so amazing that the the pickup line, the way Connery picks up the girl in the water in Thunderball, you're like, okay, that's it. That's why. That's beyond. That's not even in the script. You feel that's just so effortless like nobody can match that like yeah. watch that dialogue again it's it's like it, nobody did it like that nobody does it better really it's just crazy good the the fun of the the, the, the riches like coming back to them at a later age like you did being able to go in and out and now reevaluate is so much tied to the experiences of of watching that with our father or with our friends or it now it's it that's why i meant in the beginning bond is very personal and and when you watch them now it's not so much about the story you know all those it's just about the experience of going back to it and reliving this time in your life and and being very nostalgic it's very nostalgic and now being a father and seeing what i could pass on you, you can, i get choked up on most of those songs or i can easily get choked up let's talk about your trade and 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 the gift that God gave you is is your style of artistry. Let's talk about Robert McGuinness's posters. Oh yeah, they, they go up until Roger Moore era. Yeah, 
Bob Peaked kind of takes over for Bob Peak, Spider yeah. Love Me and and all the masters. You know, when when I picked these up, I, I changed all the covers on my horrible early whatever they came out again nineties DVDs, MGM DVDs, which had the, the worst Photoshop jobs you can ever imagine, like false hands and guns he never used and weird explosions and ninjas on there. It's just so bad. And and I I would I always wished for a box set that would just really use that original artwork that's so glorious. Yeah. I think it's just, uh, again, to why this episode is not only the 60th anniversary, it's also we find ourselves in a time now, whether it's Star Wars or it is, um, you know, it's the Marvel Universe or it's the latest, the Lord of the Rings, that whole disaster. When we stray away and, and try to fit these things into a modern sensibility, as it's now happened with Barbara Broccoli and with all the new Hollywood and all these new ideas that we are now when 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 they're trying, let's let's just even like say they have an honorable intention which i don't believe but let's just even say that they do to bring these up to a current new audience they destroy them in the process and it's just really painful for me to see where we've ended up in this glorious past and i don't think some things you just gotta let go please so i i I just wish they wouldn't do them anymore i really feel that there's no good place they can end up i i I really for a while i thought it would be interesting to go back and do period pieces like 60s bond films fill in more stories but some things like great jazz music from the time you can reinterpret them or maybe still play them but they will never be that version again and and the bond that they want now or they're currently actively trying to fabricate uh yeah it really hurts me and i don't like to see the conversation around it yeah i hope i i hope i think these time these films are eternal and going back to the books uh, i suggest that for everybody because it does give enhance that experience of the movies again and it's great fun to go in and out and dart back as we hopefully you know do the series over the years like you suggested which is a great idea your reading will will come greatly into play here and see what they left out what they enhanced what they brought to it yeah and you know it i think there's enough great stuff about these films that it warrants a discussion about each of them up to you know, at a certain point when we, we're going to get to films where are we going to have that much to say about some of the Pierce Brosnan films? I don't think we are. There are people out there who obviously have a great enthusiasm when they, uh, I can't even fathom that somebody was born in 2000, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous to me yeah. that the people could could be younger than me. I always feel like this, but now as we get to be older men and, and see growing into this, it's even crazy that we approach some of the age that Connery was in those movies and how, how, how weathered and, and, and those men for a form of the times we're just a different species right now so it doesn't even feel like we're part of the same creation and obviously we're not we are these men that have left us from ken adam to terence young and 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 even broccoli and saltzman and all this 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 is something that is i feel um uh, the biggest biggest tribute we can pay to them is to leave it alone and not just like flay their corpses just to keep something alive that it has no life left but, you know, as much as they want to soften Bond and you know, ultimately, spoiler alert for a film that came out in 2021, but they've finally killed Bond off. We've still got these films. Right, right. This is the Solos. The quantum of Solos we have is is that uh, that we do. They did make those and they did come at a time and they did take the world by storm. This is not something, you know, we often talk about our niche love for films. Everybody thought these oh, were... Oh, this is, this is broad <laughs> spectrum appeal. Yes, 100%. But it's also great. I still have passion for it. You know, after all these years, I could easily go and when he has some nonsense about 
uh, Daniel Craig and what this does now, I still get really upset. So it, it proves that there is a point uh, there is still a love of fire burning in these. This is not yeah. something that I can lay to rest. Like even with some of the Star Wars, I've laid them to rest. I've, that's not for me. I'm fine. It's died. Uh, Indiana Jones, whatever happened. It's for me. It ends when Connery and again to to tie the bow on that. When when they asked Lucas who could be Indiana Jones' son, he's like only Sean Connery, only 007 mm-hmm. can be his father. Yeah. So. When they ride off into the sunset, that's where you end it. You hear the John Williams score, and it's perfect. Tie a bow on it, wrap it, done. We can decide, luckily for ourselves, what to put in our bookshelves and where to end it. So I have the films there, the first five, and that's it will never be uh, an addition to that. That's how it will remain in my library. So there we have it. That is our celebration of the 60th anniversary of Dr. No, 60 years if you've enjoyed the episode and you do want us to continue covering each of the subsequent Bond films, please let us know. You can email us at admin at film89.co.uk. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And please also leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That'll mean a great deal to us. Tony, thank you once again for you know just lending your knowledge, endless knowledge and enthusiasm on this. This is the perfect subject for you, you know, yes. amongst many others, which we hope to cover over the years. Thank you so much, and 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 uh, yeah, the Connery forever is my hero, will never change, and and thank you for giving me the opportunity again to sing all the praises uh, of this great man, and, and now uh, the anniversary of his death is probably coming up, and now yeah. that the Queen has died, and Fleming has died, and Bond has died, <laughs> we can <laughs> finally just go back and go back and revisit and enjoy them for what they were and the, and the epicness of it. And yeah, we go probably like I always love to do is is when the episode comes out, we're going to have individual threads on Twitter, which is at Studio T Stella, and and kind of go back and forth and kind of illustrate a little bit uh, the things we're kind of as you're listening to watch along and see see things that we maybe forgot or dropped out or even to to see some some of the comparisons that we make uh, it's going to be on on twitter is the best kind of forum to, to reconvene here and also don't forget your website where everyone can check out your amazing oh, yeah, artwork tonystella.com or something like that but if you follow on, on twitter it's it's kind of a leads to all other paths now i think yeah and there's some really cool uh, things coming out in the in the future in the near future where i'm i'm really getting into indulge my other passion which is obviously the japanese cinema that there's some real big gems that have never been released that are coming out and yeah and also the first time kind of on vinyl some some really cool things are coming out like the get carter score is going to be a luxury double vinyl edition of the great roy budd score that's coming out soon so yeah follow us on twitter and uh, let's do this again soon i i, I love i love talking to you yeah absolutely 100 percent yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and you can find all of the Film 89 team at film89.co.uk. You can find their individual bios on uh, Twitter and Facebook at Film 89 UK. Did I just say that? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm flagging now. But <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a yeah, wonderful conversation, Tony. Thank you so much. I've, I've waited a long time to discuss uh, Bond finally on the podcast, and you've just been you know the perfect co-host to do it with. That's it from us for now, and until next time. Stay safe, be excellent to one another, but more importantly, stay classy.